I'd like to speak this evening with regard to the the process of what's involved for us in opening our heart and how this or aspects of how this is encountered in the, the journey of, of meditation. I think when we come to a retreat or engage in spiritual practice, we quite understandably can have the sort of anticipation or hope that there's going to be a sort of a, a linear movement from the chaos, the conflict, the struggle, the pain, the confusion and the difficulty of our life to a sense of ease, openness, spaciousness, peacefulness, comfort, well-being, freedom and that we should sort of kind of know pretty soon that that's where it's going and how it's going and that expectation um, has a certain sweet sort of innocent naivety to it. And most of us find that it's really not like that. That what we encounter in practice may be times, of course, of opening, of expansion, of release, but equally times of struggle, of pain, of contraction and reactivity. And it's really important that we don't too quickly get into a process of evaluating our performance, particularly not from our habitual tendency and pattern, which might say that, you know, if my experience looked like this, i.e. calm, bright, open, clear, then I'm going to be doing okay, or even well. There's an uh, a interesting story in this regard that I heard about from someone I know of a uh, retreat that was being taught in uh, California, I think Southern California, by Jack Cornfield and a number of other teachers. And Jack's one of the senior teachers, founders of our tradition of insight meditation in the West. And some days into the retreat, Jack came into the staff room and one of the staff asked him about his friend. He said, my friend's on the retreat. How's my friend doing? Jack said, your friend's doing really well. And uh, it's pleased the, the staff person. So he said, what about the other person I know? And named them. Oh, yeah, that person's doing really well too. And another staff member overhearing the conversation asks about their friend and Jack's response. Yeah, they're doing very well. And so the first staff member starting to wonder says, Jack, what do you mean when you say they're doing very well? And Jack just smiled and responded, they're still here. So if you've been wondering how you're doing, there's a simple answer. Very well. So easily we can tend to be hard on ourselves and on others. And that hardness we notice is a, sometimes a hardening of what we experience or describe as the heart. And it's important that we understand that the process whereby we come to feel distant or hardened or disconnected at times from others or ourselves is not something accidental, nor is it something we are entirely in control of. And yet it is something we can come to understand and transform. Things are not always the way we want them to be. This particular piece of the teaching is something we can hear again and again and still manage to forget that it's so. 
despite our best efforts. And, you know, we were talking at uh, lunchtime around the dining room around how, despite having spent vast amounts of money on large numbers of very professional contractors, the heating system still doesn't work sometimes. And sometimes the building is cold. Despite having spent umpteen tens of thousands on a new boiler, a wood chip boiler, and apparently there's airlocks in the pipes and they stop the heat getting around and the pipes go through walls and don't come out where you expect them to so they can't find where the airlocks are. And next year, a guy house is going to shut down for six weeks and find where those pipes are in the walls and sort them out because it's finally come to the point where it needs to be done. But along the way, it's a lot of people being cold in the house at times. And it's not what anyone wishes for, but how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that? Sometimes it's cold. In the meditation hall, of course, the heating's going very well. It's like, you know, (laughs) open a couple of windows, someone? I'm not saying that, but it's like, you know, it's cold out there, it's hot in here. You know, couldn't somewhere it just be just the right temperature? Couldn't just somewhere it be just the right temperature for me? It might be a little too hot for someone else, a little too cold for somebody else, but for me it would be nice if it was just the right temperature. I sit there contemplating before I walk down there. Shall I wear a jumper as well? What about if I've got something under my shirt and it gets too hot? I'm not going to be able to take it off. It's so hard for us. We can sometimes approach it with some lightness. We can sometimes approach it with some lightness, but other times we can find ourselves really like it's not okay the way things are. Yesterday we couldn't get the electronic thing to work to record the talk. It was like maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe we're just not going to be able to record. And the, you know, the really lovely offering that Helen was about to make might have been lost forever. And fortunately we got it to work. And we think it's because all the cake. No, we're not sure. Okay, so we don't know what happened. But anyway, the people in charge of the cables and the machinery said, please don't mess with the cables. Be careful. Don't kick them, bump them or jump on them. And tell everybody. To me they said that. And it's like it's another one of those things. We don't know if that's what caused the problem. Maybe the machine's wearing out. Maybe it's the sort of the, the, I don't know, just the nature of what happens. All that meditation goes on and the electronics go funny. Who knows? Who knows what's happening? But things like that are all around, all around. And yet really easily we can start to imagine that somehow, somehow we have to react to that to protect ourselves in a way that leads us to to tighten, to contract, to harden, to solidify, to enter into a, a contending with life, a battle with life, a struggle with life. And so there's a story which some of you may have heard before. Apparently it's a true story. It's certainly how it came to me that I'd like to share because it sheds a lot of light on this and the way we tend to react to things when they're not as we wish them to be. It's described as an actual transcript of a radio conversation between a US naval ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. So I've had this for quite a while now. Anyway, the radio conversation was released by the Chief of Naval Operations and it's, you know, it's in text, which I think before modern communications and that still was just before that, they the sense of sending, you know, the the language across um in text form. So it comes communication from the American ship. Please divert your course 15 degrees north to avoid a collision. 
and Canadians respond. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Yours in capitals. The Canadians respond, no, I say again, you divert your course. This piece is in all in capitals, which is the equivalent of shouting, I think, in this form of communication. It's, and the American response, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that's 1-5 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. (laughs) Your call... How many times have we found ourselves in life demanding that it be different than it is? Threatening, cajoling, persuading, or sometimes taking up arms in a sense. You know, you get the sense of that last piece of this is the carrier, da 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 da, and it's like, mm, be scared of me, I'm tough. And yet in the end, the lighthouse cannot get out of the way. The only way this is not going to have a bad ending is if the ship recognises it needs to adjust. That's obvious to us. We can have a good laugh. And yet part of what's funny is that we recognise, perhaps, how we might do that sort of thing ourselves. We need to learn to accommodate the way life is. And part of what that involves is noticing how we tend to harden up in the face of things being other than as we wish them to be. How we tend to toughen up and how we can actually experience a hardening, a toughening, a tightening, a contracting, a solidifying, a densification of our body, heart, mind and experience. And... If we look at what's going on in that hardening, it's like we're trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to, if we can get really hard, then it's like armor. It's like then I won't feel what, gets com- what comes in, what impacts me. And yet, what actually happens is that we become numb. We become desensitized to life. We start not actually allowing ourselves or being able to feel the full effect and impact of it in our system. And it's a little bit like that line from the Simon and Garfunkel song from the early 70s. I am a rock, and a rock feels no pain. I am an island, and an island never cries. And that movement to, to avoid being hurt by becoming hard, becoming isolated, hardening and isolated, a rock, an island, we get those images perhaps quite clearly. Why does that happen that way? How does it come to be? It's not an accident. It's not because we're foolish. I think an important place to start in this reflection 
like ouch sometimes it's ouch that's going on for us and it's not easy and the way that we kind of try and handle it by numbing ourselves or disconnecting or just not being present for the experiences that are happening may have had some validity and use and importance for us when we were very young and had no other way to handle the way life sometimes came in. But as, as an adult with our full adult capacities and maturities, which we may not yet have fully developed or even recognised, what we start to notice is that in that process of trying to harden or deaden or protect or numb ourselves out so we don't have to feel that distancing process, that actually we can't really do it effectively. We can't disconnect. We can't really get separate from our experience. We might lose contact with a certain aspect of it, but in fact it still hurts. It's still painful. And that very experience of feeling hardened or disconnected is one of the most painful things we encounter. And in the process of the hardening... We, we actually lose contact with the softness, with the openness, with the receptivity to beauty and to sweetness and to the tender touch of life that's also all around us, mixed in together with the harsh and the piercing and the scary. We lose contact with all of it, and yet it's still somehow on the inside painful to us, that condition. This process that we're engaged in here, whether we really expect or like it or want it or not, has amongst its effects the very clear capacity to begin to soften us, to begin to tenderize us, to begin to bring us more into our human sensitivity by the very intention and primary practice of inhabiting what's happening, we start to feel. Now sometimes what we feel makes us lead, leads us to wonder if this is a good idea. And we're not at all sure. So we notice the movement away or to something else. But as we keep coming back and keep coming back, it's like there's a, there's a softening, there's a moistening, there's a lubricating that starts to happen in what otherwise might have felt dry or hard or stiff or stuck or tight. And that can be quite scary and painful at times to feel our life start to move in us more fully again. And it's not that it wasn't already moving and that we weren't already in touch with it, but there are ways and layers and dimensions of that that speak to how much more our life can touch us in both ways that are painful and poignant, but equally also in ways that are sweet and uplifting.
And so this practice is not one in which we're asked or encouraged to escape our experience, but in which we're really invited and supported to enter into it, to go more deeply into what this is that we call being here, or alive, or a human being. All those words, none of which really get very close to what it's actually like to be here, open and touched by all of this, all of this, over and over, again and again, moment after moment after moment. It's happening to us. Or so it seems. So this hardness, this protective, this attempt to preserve a safe distance or be able to determine what I let in and what I don't, it's actually quite a blunt sort of instrument. It's not something that we can really be open when we want to be open and then close straight up for the thing we want to close up. As we close, we realize we're close to everything. And becoming aware of that can be actually quite, can evoke quite a sense of sorrow and sadness to see the degrees to which it happens for us. And it happens for us all. It mostly begins long before we have any idea that we even are a human being when we're very little. And it's like there's a certain imprisoning that takes place. We feel a sense of limitedness, a sense of not really feeling alive at times or the aliveness of our experience, which is part of why we go looking for other things to entertain, to fulfill, to stimulate, to satisfy us. And do you notice how the intensity of what's on offer is getting increased and increased and increased and increased? If you listen to a movie made in the 70s when a gun goes off, you can barely hear it. It's like this little pop. You think someone's making popcorn. Why is that? Someone's making popcorn. Why is that person falling over? You know, compared to the amount of volume that's produced for the sound of a gunshot in a movie we've watched today, basically, as a culture, as a, as a group, we're becoming desensitized. And it needs something ever more noisy and loud to penetrate and make an impact. And actually, we want to be impact. That's why we pay money to go and sit and watch someone do things that scare us or impact us or touch us in some way. So one way to stay, st- keep trying to stay in touch with the sense of aliveness is to amplify the intensity. But it's not sustainable. It's overwhelming, in fact. And we can see how the speed, the busyness, the intensity, all the things that are there for us. And yet something in us is not satisfied by that, as we've spoken about already. So the sense of encountering a certain distance or hardness or protected armouredness is something useful to reflect on, to notice, because it's not something we that quickly want to let go of. We might think we do, but something in us usually just does not want to let go of that. We don't want to necessarily be exposed too quickly to life. I had a what for me was a very uh, powerful and useful experience some years ago when I was teaching a retreat in America at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And uh, I was going for a walk in the woods near, there, um, near the retreat centre. And as I was walking through the, on the path, I saw in front of me, probably about um, six feet, two metres ahead of me, 
a large snake. And I stopped completely dead still, you know, looking transfixed. A mixture of fascination and terror. It's like, snake! We don't have any snakes in New Zealand where I come from. This is definitely dangerous. This is, you know, I didn't even know which way it was facing. Where was its head? I could just see its body across the path at sort of 45 degree angle. And I stopped and I looked. And as I looked, I saw it wasn't moving. So I breathed. <laughs> I went a little bit closer because I was really fascinated as well. And I saw it wasn't moving. So I got a little closer and I realised it wasn't actually a snake. It's a snake's skin sitting on the path, but just as big as a snake. And I started to think, gosh, that snake that was in there had to get out of that, which can't have been easy. Looks like it was probably a tight fit. And why, and why did he do that? Why, or she? Why did that snake get out of its skin? It's like, you know, of course, we know these things, don't we? We learned in school, probably, at least some of us, that you know, snake has to shed its skin to grow because the skin is like protective and strong and firm and tight but it can't stretch because of the nature of it it's solid and so in order for the snake to grow it has to come out of that thing and it's probably going to come out kind of soft and maybe a bit juicy and certainly tender because if it comes out with another shell or skin on it just as hard it's not going to be any bigger or better is it if it was inside the other one so it's got to come out soft, and it's probably going to be a bit scary at that moment because if an eagle comes past, you know, what's it going to do? There's a lot of vulnerability involved in taking off one's skin. And yet for the snake, this is what I was reflecting, it has to do that to survive or it will die inside its own skin. What a dilemma. And perhaps we can see how that relates to our own situation. We don't really know. Certainly times that I've wondered, do I really want to let myself feel what's here? Do I really want to be open? Be sensitive to this? Sometimes it's important to go slowly. To allow it to be really natural and organic. It doesn't help to push. It really doesn't help to push. But to be willing to allow the organic process to take place requires a great degree of courage because as we soften and open what we start to notice is vulnerability a number of people have spoken about the unknownness of circumstances they're facing in their life and what unknownness brings us into contact with is vulnerability we can't predict or plan for that which we do not know So we can see, perhaps, often a tendency to blame ourselves or blame others for the way things are. It's kind of a defence mechanism which we harden ourselves against others or against ourselves or against life or against God or whoever it is we hold responsible for the way things are. And it isn't someone's fault. Not yours, not someone else's. It's really important to get this. It's not your fault that life is the way it is. Hmm? We kind of hear, might, might hear ourselves saying, yeah, I know, I know. And you know, it's not your fault that life is the way it is, that your life is the way it has been, and others likewise. Yeah? Do we get that? 
Is there some part of us that resists, that would rather say, yes, it is. Somebody's fault. It's got to be someone's fault. But you know, it's not your fault. Really? We think that something's wrong because it hurts sometimes, because it's scary sometimes. And if something's wrong, it must be someone's fault. And in the absence of someone else to blame, easily the tendency to blame oneself. With really painful and tragic consequences, then that we actually harden to our own life, our own heart hardens to itself. And it's so painful. And so far as we encounter ways or places in our experience in which that may be part of what's there, it's so important just to allow ourselves to meet the experience and to trust that even if it's numb or it's painful or it's scary or it hurts, that there's some wisdom, there's some intelligence happening in this or expressing itself in this process whereby we are being brought into contact with what's here to be experienced. Pain itself, as I spoke with some of you in one of the groups recently, pain is remarkably good at getting our attention. We tend to think it's a sign that something's wrong, but actually it's a sign that we need to pay attention to this place. We need to pay attention to what's going on to see what's needed. Sometimes a response is needed. Sometimes it's not a response, it's just our attention that's needed. And yet we resist it. We feel like, I don't want to feel it. I don't want to experience it. Why is it happening to me? When I was travelling in India... Amongst the things I was really privileged to have the opportunity to explore and experience was to work in a, uh, a street clinic in Calcutta amongst some of the very poorest and uh, unfortunate, one might say, people who live in that, that city and uh, offering of free medical care to people living on the streets as they did. One of the things that was being supported was giving care for those with leprosy. And talking with one of the the medically trained people, of which I'm not, about the condition, I was amazed to hear and understand that I actually had completely misunderstood what leprosy was about. Because my association, and the association maybe for many of us, is that it's this horrible disease that rots part of your tissue and makes them fall off. One loses one's fingers or one's lips or one's limbs in extreme cases. And what was explained to me was that that's not so. That what leprosy does is it kills the nerve tissue and you can't feel pain. And in situations where people have little education and even less hygiene available, they get cut, they get burnt, they get infection. And the infection is what causes the loss 
of the fingers or the lips or the limbs or occasionally the life. And because they couldn't feel the pain, they didn't realize what was happening until it was too late. And so the shocking, I mean, apart from realizing I'd completely misunderstood until that moment what was happening here, the shocking thing for me was to realize that for these people, the thing that would most improve their life would be to feel pain. And they couldn't. In the way that we and I so strongly try and avoid having to ever do, having to ever feel. And yet, so lucky we are that we can feel pain. In one sense. That doesn't make it easy to experience. But it perhaps gives a little perspective on its place. It's appropriateness. And we might see that pain has a way of opening us up. One of the values, not that we're seeking more pain, there's plenty enough already here. It's not that there's some idea that, you know, suffering is the way forward. More of it's going to go quicker, we're going to get there quicker. But there is definitely something in the way this practice works that says if we're willing to let ourselves feel the discomfort within, you know, within a certain limit, not just always move away from it, that it's not just about allowing ourselves to become calm and still and steady, but there's something in that willingness, that courage to just stay here when actually I'd rather lie down and go to sleep or I'd rather just get up and have a cup of tea or I'd rather any number of other things because that would be easier. But just to say that it somehow has this effect of starting to work on the inside in a transformative way that's unpredictable and yet unstoppable ultimately. And so there's another story I want to share with you. It's a little longer. But for me it speaks to me still despite that I've read it and shared it many, many times. And it is a story that was told by a by an English Buddhist monk who was on pilgrimage in India at the time and I was practicing in a monastery in Budgaya, the, the the town or village where nearby where the Buddha's enlightenment took place and uh, Ajahn Suchito is his name. I hadn't met him before this encounter but uh, since been fortunate to come to know him as both a teacher and a friend and uh, he told a story that I want to share. So I'll read it in the first person as he related. I transcribed it from his talk and asked his permission to, to share it with others. So it's him speaking, although I'll say I. He says, Many years ago I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit, pain I would think, be with the pain. That will do it. Here am I, being with the pain. Being with the pain. It's not working, you know. Maybe I need to do some yoga. That's got it. Oh no, it's back. Maybe cushion, one cushion, two cushion, three, four cushions. Angle them left, angle them right. Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor, osteopath. Five years I had this pain. I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts and I don't like it. A very obvious truth, yet I hadn't actually gone, hadn't actually come to that, accepted that what, what one glosses over in a few words, I don't like pain. 
Instead, I had acted on I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well, you should like pain. Pain is good for you. Pain is bad. Make it go away. But I hadn't looked into I do not like. So one day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it. The showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours and I'm going to get over this thing. Pain, pain, wriggle. Why did I say that? Why five hours? (laughs) After all, this is the middle way, you know, moderation and all that. Hours go by, two hours, three hours, three hours and one minute. (laughs) After four hours, I was so sick of this pain. My mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it, be friendly to it, kill it. (laughs) And came back to, oh God, this pain. And finally the mind just relaxed. Rested. It got tired out, I guess. Eventually, ignorance does get tired. This is good news. Ignorance does get tired and after a while has to take a break from being ignorant. And instead of ignoring it and repressing it, actually begin to open to it. Without the, let's open to it, make it go away. Or, let's open to it and that will make me go into some kind of cosmic space. But just, oh, all right. Then I began to see this sensation throbbing away. And it began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And then because of this choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that. And then there's this terrible kind of, no, 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 feeling going on. Resistance. And then with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body. Bitterness towards pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful. Pain, go away. And this kind of moaning mind. As I contemplated my relationship to the sensation, it became clear to me there was nothing I could do about the sensation. But I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and kickings that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its own thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way and that way. And I felt like this whole system was like some mangy dog that had never really been loved and had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind of this dog, a kind of mangy, hungry wolf, looking at me saying, How long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt the sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness towards life. In my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it and to say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog. I always think of Scooby-Doo. This creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing. Me and this pain. Me and the dog. And then the whole thing just exploded. Very gently. And the pain disappeared. It seemed to say, Thank you. Finally. I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for realizing that the problem was, I do not like. I will not accept. I will not open to you. And once you open... The lesson has been learned. The business is finished.
a lovely story. I find it very touching. And interestingly, we can hear the story and think, oh, that's how you do it. Huh? Like something in us is looking for the way to make it happen. Now, Ramdas had something very useful to say about this because he said, you can't be with the experience in order for it to go away because it knows. If we're being with the experience in order for it to go away, it's just another form of aversion, of resistance, of rejection. So, looking at this experience of encountering what's difficult for us, so much of what makes it difficult is fear. And to understand how strongly we're driven at times out of our experience into the future, out of the present into the fantasy, into the fear of what has not yet happened. Mark Twain once observed, he said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. But the anticipation of what might happen is actually often the most painful thing we encounter. And if we can't avoid that which we fear, again, as I said, there's that turning towards anger, a hardening, a pushing away. So there's some real, something really that's challenging us here, that's asking us to turn to our life, to open to our life as it is. And some of what makes it hard to do that, it feels like somehow that this is happening to me. And it's not happening to others. It's somehow personal about me that my life is so hard, whereas other people seem to have got it easy or better than me. And because it's happening to me, I feel like I must do something to make that different. I must fight against it or struggle with it. Somehow to preserve my existence, we imagine or believe. And you know, it's true that for each of us, what has happened, our experience, the particulars, the story, we could say, is unique, is different. Nobody had it exactly like you. Nobody knows exactly what it was for you to have it the way you had it. And yet, for each of us, That is the same truth. That although the story and the particulars are unique, the overall dynamic of the experience is universal and no one is is exempt from it. No one is exempt from this reality. The Buddha spoke of the challenge of life. And he put it in very immediate, direct terms. He talked about, in terms of our bodily existence, birth, ageing, sickness, death. And how no one escapes this, born without asking to be, or organising it, at least that we're aware of. And having been born encountering ageing, sickness, and ultimately death. I spoke to Catherine, my wife, just 15 minutes ago, just completely out of the blue, a friend of ours lives down the road. We didn't know he was ill. He's dead. I'm just like, 
He was only 40. He leaves a wife and a young son and one just feels, ah, oh, huh. That's there. We all have these experiences. We all have these experiences in life in different ways and forms. And this we face in the way we can't control our experience. We can't keep our body at ease. That's telling us about how it's going to be for us at times in our life when we can't get comfortable, when we can't adjust our way out of the discomfort. So there's something we learn in the times we're willing to stay here with it. Because sometimes we won't have an option. And it's okay to use to adjust or sometimes to use medication to help us when we're on our edge. But at another level, at some way and at some degree, we have to learn to open in these places too. The Buddha spoke of and really it's the emotional realm one could say. He talked about he talked about birth, aging, sickness, death. He talked about sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. As things that we also encounter as human beings that are hard to encounter. Sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. Ouch. And who hasn't known some of these in their life? Who has been exempt from that? You know, if we think that maybe we could get through life without that, I offer you a reflection here. If you love something or someone in your life, if you let your heart be open and touched and let its love come forth for someone or something in this life, at some point you will be parted from that someone or something. And that will hurt. It will be painful. And you know, if you don't ever let your heart love and be touched by someone or something in this life, that will hurt. That will be painful. There isn't a third option. We all of us are in this reality. And it's like that for us some of the time. And the Buddha went on to say also, Sorrow, pain, sorry, birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, despair. He went on to say, being associated with what we don't like, being separated from what we do like, and not getting what you want. This is hard to bear. And this happens for us. And you know, if we put on the advertisement for the meditation retreat, come along, birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, despair, not getting what you want, who'd sign up? Probably not 60 of us. And yet in some way, that's what's on the, re- on the menu. But you know, not because we're here on retreat, it's on the menu. Because we're alive, it's on the menu. So what about if we open to this truth? What about if we were to contemplate that this is actually universal? It's not just about me. Does that make a difference to how we face it, to how we experience it? Another story. It's a story, again, a true story from a hospice in America. Hazel came into the hospital, the hospice hospital, in a very contracted state. 
The nurses called her a real bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All she did not want or could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone in a great deal of pain. She had judged so many, so much and so often that even her grown children would not visit. For six weeks her isolation and pain increased until one night she came to a point where she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. Feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. Never had it been so clear to her how her intense holding had created such intense pain. Feeling death approach, she remembered herself as a young woman, open and hungry for life. She saw how she had closed down over the years. With a sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her and exhausted Unable to fight another moment, she surrendered, let go, and died into her life, into the moment. Letting go into the pain in her spine and legs, she began to sense, quite beyond reason, that she was somehow not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the 10,000 in pain. She said, she began to experience all the other beings who at that very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. At first there arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, breasts slack from malnutrition, lying on her side, a starving child suckling at her empty breast, spine and legs twisted in pain. For an instant she became this Ethiopian woman, dying in the mud. Then there arose the experience of an Eskimo Inuit woman lying on her side, dying during childbirth. Tremendous pain in her back, hips, legs, and dying the same death. Image after image arose. She was each, dying beside the others. She said she experienced the ten thousand sufferings simultaneously, all at once. She said, the pain was beyond my bearing. I just couldn't stand it any longer. And something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it just wasn't my pain. It was the pain. It wasn't just my life. It was all life. It was life itself. As the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience, Hazel's heart opened more and more to all the others in pain at the hospital. She asked after them constantly, and the room became a place where the nurses would come, because it was a room of love. Soon her children came to visit because of the warmth and surrender of her phone calls, responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sat on her bed. The grandchildren she had never met. The heart she had rejected before they were born. And for several weeks before her death, Hazel's room became a place of healing, of finished business, of universal care. What happens when we take the experience of pain or of struggle or things not being 
as we wish them to be. When we take that as somehow a sign that something is wrong, and when we take that as meaning something about ourselves, that somehow this is happening to me, what it does is it creates a sense of isolation and disconnection that is deeply painful to us. And when we start to open to the truth that it is not happening just in this location, that it is happening equally elsewhere, and it's not all that's happening, of course, but it's one of the most profound and powerful elements of our lives, this encounter with what is difficult and hard to bear. When we see that everybody around us is likewise encountering this, rather than feeling made separate or held distant from each other by the suffering and the pain. In fact, it quite unstoppably dissolves and breaks down the barrier and the separation that we have imagined and come to believe is actually true. And one of the the gifts of our struggle and our suffering is its capacity to ultimately cut through the isolated shells which we can imagine ourselves to be living in and feel ourselves as if we were living in, but which are not fundamentally expressing what is most true about our life. As we feel into what it's like to be here, as we feel into those places, and many of you have reported at times, places of tight hardness, that kind of armoring process being encountered or at times the sense of opening up and sometimes opening up to waves of something overwhelmingly powerful and scary perhaps or at times opening up to something sweet and lovely and beautiful, that process of opening invites it all and as we open, as we See this, we recognize the lack of connection is the deepest suffering. The isolatedness is actually the deepest suffering that's bound in with our blindness, our blindness, our not seeing how we are inextricably interconnected, inextricably co participating in this existence with everything all at once. Every moment. That openness may be fearful to us, but if we meet it, if we meet the fear and allow ourselves to be open to this too, all things are possible. The poet and ecologist Wendell Berry writes, I go among trees and sit still. All my tasks lie in their places around me, asleep like cattle. All my stirring becomes quiet about me like circles on water. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. And then the fear of it leaves me. And what 
I fear in it leaves it. It sings and I hear its song. In some ways for me this poem expresses the whole journey that, or aspect of the journey that I'm speaking to tonight. To sit, allowing our tasks, our busyness to just be put to one side. Allowing the stirring and the agitation to begin to just settle. And then we encounter our life. And sometimes it's scary. But if we can sit in its presence, what scares us about our life starts to leave. And the fear of our life starts to leave us. And it sings. We hear its song. We're no longer separate. We resonate. We resonate with life when we are open to it. And that resonance is profoundly sweet and healing. While at the same time powerfully challenging. When we talk about this practice of opening our heart, we are really inviting ourselves to return to being the fluid medium that we are. That our fear and our reactivity, our anger and our hardening obstructs the expression of. So the fluidity is still here, but its expression is obstructed. And the friction in that obstruction is what we call suffering. And so as we learn to not obstruct it, although it may be tender and poignant at times, is that actually the openness and the fluidity starts to express itself more fully. And we start to be sensitive to, to know directly that condition as the nature of what it is that's here, that we've called ourself as the nature of what it is that's here that we've called someone else. As the nature of what it is that's here that actually encompasses everything. Within which, of course, there's forms and expressions. And in that condition of openness, what we sense, what we see, what we begin to know more and more is this Life passing through. Not needing to take hold of what it is that's passing through. Not needing to keep out what it is that's passing through. Because what is passing through is what lets us know that there's something it's passing through. And that which it's passing through is this medium, this space, this silence, this fluidity, this openness, this aliveness, this awareness, this consciousness, this just this. Just this. Any word we put on it doesn't quite get it. So I throw a whole lot of words at it and maybe some of them will touch for you. And others might not. It's okay. It's this. It's this. It's not something else. There isn't something else. It's this. And what this is, as we really allow ourselves to enter into it, so we don't hold ourselves back from it, It's this. And that thisness, 
that this the thisness is its own fulfillment, its own completion. And life still moves and pours through with its challenges, its uncertainties, its beauty, its preciousness, its unfathomability and mystery. And it's pouring right through this space right now, unstoppably. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all, in our practice and through our lives, come to deepen in that courage and love that allows us to face and open to our life as it is. And may we come to know ever more deeply the openness and the fluidity that is peace and freedom and full of life. For our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.